This evening we welcome not just any Shabbat, but as I said before, Shabbat Hagadol, the great Shabbat. This is the final Shabbat before what is called in the Torah Chag He'aviv, the spring festival of Passover. For the past two weeks now, since March 12th, we have observed the waxing moon growing larger throughout the month of Nisan. And three nights from now, under the light and radiance of a full moon and hopefully a clear sky here in San Francisco, we will congregate in one another's homes for the first night of Pesach. We have also made a second entrance. We've entered into the book of Vayikra, or Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. In this week's Torah portion, we are in the second Torah portion overall of this book. The narrative of the Bible comes to an abrupt pause, and we delve into the intricate steps of sacrifices in the tabernacle, two subjects which our bar mitzvah students have to struggle with and reckon with, reconcile with to make sense of in our modern Jewish context. The Torah starts to read less like a novel and more like a cookbook, which is fitting, I guess, given the many recipes passed around this time of year for the best matzo ball soup or gefilte fish. At the same time, like I said, it doesn't make the process any easier for the bar mitzvah students for the next couple of weeks. Yet there exists a much deeper connection between Leviticus's sacrificial rites and the upcoming Passover holiday. While Leviticus details the steps of each sacrifice, the very first instruction to the Jewish people to offer such a sacrifice is found in the story of Passover. As God prepares to bring the final plague upon the Egyptian people, God first makes a request of the Israelites. They are to select a lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on their doorposts, and eat it over a roasted fire with unleavened bread. They are not to leave any of the lamb until the morning. God's request is somewhat audacious in that the Israelites are instructed to eternally ritualize an event that has not yet happened. Exodus 12:17 reads, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. On this day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. It's as if I asked you to call your friends now and share the details of the amazing meal that you are going to have for dinner tonight. Again, quite the audacious request. Through the first nine plagues, the Israelites have passively observed the back and forth between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. Here now, after plague nine and before plague ten and liberation, the Israelites are commanded to act to do something. Before any change takes place, the Israelites must first demonstrate their faith in God's ability to deliver on the promise of redemption, and that faith must be transformed into action. God does not act in a vacuum, but rather only in active participation with us. Ultimately, we take the first step. Moreover, the Israelites are commanded to obligate their children and their children's children to maintain this practice. The relationship is not between God and these particular Israelites, but rather with all Israelites for all time. Each of us delivers on this promise when we gather for the Passover Seder, an event first promised after Plague 9 and before Plague 10. This morning I had the honor of officiating at a 
Brit Mila, a circumcision and a baby naming here in San Francisco. And in looking at Passover and studying before the Passover Seder, it occurs to me that there are several connections as well between the Brit Milah and between Passover. The idea on Passover is that you need to put the blood on the outside of your house, not just on the inside, so that everyone on the outside would know that you are Jewish. It's a lesson that we as Jews can't be purely internal Jews in our thoughts or in our identity, but ultimately it must be transformed to our actions in the outside world. We must have the strong identity as Jews to allow ourselves to be observed from the outside as Jews. Similar to the commandment regarding lighting a menorah at Hanukkah, where do you put your menorah? You put it in the window facing the public thoroughfare so that you should be proud and people should know that Hanukkah is being observed inside. Similarly, and perhaps in a bit more painful way, the circumcision is a way to mark the body on the outside to say that it's not enough to be Jewish with your neshama on the inside, but that on the outside there must be something, some manifestation of your Jewish identity in the outside physical world, and a reminder to us as Jews that we too must always be motivated to act based upon whatever we learn and however we pray. Perhaps the most important element of the commandment of the sacrifice of Passover is the instruction to eat the entire lamb before the morning. Consider what this means. Even a small lamb would provide an amazing amount of eat to be consumed in a short amount of time. And even if all of your participants and all of your family members were on the Atkins diet, the necessary effect would be to bring people together to share in such a meal. You can't eat the Passover sacrifice by yourself. In this way, the shank bone is not, only, is not the only remnant of the Passover sacrifice present at your Seder table. The fact that you are gathering at all stems from the commandment to eat the entire sacrifice before the morning. And while we are all here to eat the sacrifice and unleavened bread, why not add four cups of wine, a, full, a few clumps of haroset, gefilte fish, and so on. But the original idea behind the Seder originates with the Passover sacrifice and the commandment to eat so much lamb that it simply has to be shared and you have to turn to the strangers around you and interact with them and create community. In studying with one of our own bar mitzvah students, Ben Schatz, we together read a commentary to the book of Vayikra by the 11th century commentator Rashi. While Ben will speak to Rashi's findings at greater length tomorrow, and I surely hope not to steal any of his thunder, suffice to say this evening that Rashi believes that the sacrifice carries with it the additional intent of forcing us to confront death on a regular basis. Through witnessing an animal's death and the pouring of its blood, we are reminded of our own mortality and the fleeting nature of life. Thus the sacrifice provides a fitting complement to the Passover symbols of life and rebirth, such as the roasted egg. As the world awakens and thaws for the spring, as the moon waxes throughout the spring month of Nisan and life and the trees come back to life, we celebrate God's power of regeneration and eternal creation. Yet at the same time, through the Passover sacrifice, we are reminded that this cycle will ultimately continue downward and that our time in this world is finite. We may choose to live our lives under the control and pressure of the many pharaohs that surround us, or we may cast off those limitations and with God as our partner, 
take the first step in living life to the fullest, recognizing that we get only one shot. Such is the magic of Passover, the Jewish holiday of commitment, action, rebirth, renewal, and optimism. I wish you all a Chag Sameach, a happy Passover, and Shabbat Shalom.